Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Something I love about this show is that I have the space to dig into topics and practices with people who have been immersed in them for many years. Documenting these stories and personal experiences of trainings, spiritual practices, traveling, and ideas is truly a thrill and an honor. Today's topic is the koan, defined as paradoxical anecdotes and riddles used in Zen to demonstrate inadequacy of logical reasoning for the purpose of provoking enlightenment. This discussion is told through the lived experiences of my guest, Corey Ichigen Hess, a former Rinzai Zen monk turned body therapist living on Whidbey Island in Washington State. Corey was my guest on episode 80 of this show when we talked about monastic living and the day-to-day routine of being a Rinzai monk. Corey and I have kept in close contact in the months since we first talked, and we get to talking via email about koan practice, particularly how I found them so confusing. A particular blog entry of Corey's jumped out at me, in which he describes koans. In his November 11, 2018 entry, titled Describing Traditional Rinzai Koan Practice, from his website zenembodiment.com, he writes, quote, In Zen, after our Zazen meditation has deepened to a certain point, and after we have had a significant breakthrough in our consciousness, we begin to do koans. Koans are little stories, little situations, in which the enlightened masters express and display their states of mind. Through working with these situations, the student's own state of mind is molded to grasp the incomprehensible meaning of the koan. Corey is a good writer. He's good-natured, he's funny, and he's a caring person, and I love his sense of humor. He likens his training in koans to adding an additional gear to his way of seeing the world, adding an energy, a tool, which makes him feel like a wizard in a muggle world. As always, you can follow this show on Twitter at classical underscore ideas, or support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. I'd love to hear from you also at classical ideas at outlook.com. So for me, this conversation with Corey was funny, pushed me to understand the mysterious practice of koans, and helped me have a reason to hang out a second time with my friend Corey Hess. You can find Corey online at zenembodiment.com and at coreyhessbodytherapy.com. So without further delay, please enjoy our conversation on Koan Practice. Thank you so much for coming back on Classical Ideas. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. This is exciting. I love having return guests, and I'm delighted that you are coming on the show today to talk about koans. But really quick, for anyone who wants to get into like the nitty-gritty of your life and backstory uh, of you living in a Japanese Rinzai monastery, any listener can go back and check out episode 80 of Classical Ideas, as well as your episode that you did on the show Hess's Heroes where you discuss a lot of your history. But is there anything you want to say as a way of introducing your practice and your life so um, you can get the listeners who haven't heard episode 80 kind of like know who you are? Um, I'm a former Zen monk. I spent my 20s in Japan and in the U.S. and monasteries. And um, yeah, now I'm just a dad here on on Whidbey Island in the Pacific Northwest, and I do healing work now as a way to sort of a medium to express some of that in my life. Um, I kind of think of myself as sort of an artist now. Wonderful. And a writer, I would also like to add. <laughs> right. So you called being a Zen monk in your blog, Zen Embodiment, you called it like being a primordial energy wizard. What does that mean? Well, um, part of that is... I'm trying to uh, get the reader in that to realize that Zen isn't kind of just this intellectual 
exercise that, you know, we've got this where we see Zen, Zen is everywhere now, kind of getting your Zen on or relaxing, anything like that. And, and in fact, the training is much more, um, in this energetic transformative sort of process. And, um, the, the practitioner, um, yeah, they, so, so you, more and more, it's almost like through this transformation, you, you start to get in touch more and more with this great life energy. And in that process, it, it becomes sort of magical. Um, everything comes alive. You heal. Um, you begin to tap into something very, very powerful. Excellent. So this unseen energy that Zen monks tap into through months and years of practice, of zazen, of meditation, of work. This is not an intellectual endeavor, that, like you said. Is that right? Right, right, exactly. What should we understand it as being if it's not an intellectual endeavor that we can think ourselves into understanding? I think... A lot of the the way that we sort of navigate life is by reaching out with our awareness towards everything, and we try to grasp things. And Zen is primarily about not grasping outwards for anything. And, and so part of that grasping is to intellectualize things. So I want to understand that. I want to grab that and figure it out. And the Zen really, it you know, with the Roshi, he really would make us stop doing that. We had, to, we had to receive what was happening. We had to engage cellularly with each moment. And that engaging is so very radically different than anything we are used to in our lives. Okay. So, like this energy... Yes. Um, which you have sort of like turned into like a profession, right? Like you work right. with this energy. You've gone and you've carried this forward into the world outside of the monastery. And you describe in your blog that this energy is almost sort of like the meaning of life to a monk. Is that accurate? Uh, I think it is. Um, and and so really this energy is what we're talking about is, is the source. It's sort of the base of reality. And... And instead of an idea of reality, instead of um, a thought, we're actually trying to engage with the energy of this very moment. And that is a cellular process. It's a, it's a process of becoming what's happening over and over. And again, that's so radically different. But so, so that's not something you can think about. It's something that, you know, it's like we, we, um, learn to feel and grab the moment and experience it in a way that's very powerful. Okay, um, so so my life, yeah, I'm out here. Is I I took a lot of that training and I wanted to express that. I wanted to uh, help people with that um, engagement and I wanted to communicate. And um, so so part of my life is 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 communicating about this great kind of love affair with reality. And how to, for me, I found that if I would really engage with that, that I would heal, that I would become happy, that um, instead of me being at, at odds with reality, um, instead of me feeling that perhaps uh, the world was against me in some way, I found that if I could engage with what was happening, that um, I would become one with it. And then um, that would be great joy would come from that. Did you always have a sense that this energy existed in the world even before you became a monk? Is this something that has been consistent throughout your life or was this a development that kind of like smacked you over the head only after beginning practice? Um, well, I think that usually one comes to this sort of intense practice because you're, you're running up against yourself and reality and, um, you know, physically or health wise, or, um, you know, they talk about this notion of what's called the great doubt. And that is kind of this fundamental feeling that something's not right. Something's you're not uh, fitting with what's happening. And you need to realize some truth to understand how to become one with like reality. And so for me, I think I was always feeling, um, 
like I knew possibilities were out there for, um, you know, engaging with life, but I, I wasn't sure how to get there. Um, so I think in a way it's both, it's both that you, you know, you've got a, a somehow you have a sense of our own, everyone's true nature. And yet you, you know that, so you need to realize it, you need to, um, fulfill it. And, and so that was real strong with me. Excellent. Okay. So I just kind of want to see if I um, if there's a misconception out there about this energy that you're talking about. Is this similar to what is known as Tao at all? I think that all of these. Um, okay, this is the source of this is the base of of everything, mm-hmm. and so all of the um, different you know philosophies or religions. I think personally that those are all cultural additives onto what is base. So for me, like it's not really interesting to think of um, something which is uh, okay that someone created this. That that's not actually that interesting. It's it's more what's the base of everything. And so I would think the Tao is the same. I would think that a Sufi master perhaps would be engaging with the same thing slightly differently through a, a cultural lens. So that's more interesting to me than um, what someone you know thought out. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is all a great mystery to me that I'm wrestling with myself. (laughs) You know, Um, that's why I love talking to you about this kind of stuff, because I am genuinely perplexed on many of these issues. So um, you have written that Zazen has to deepen to a certain point and that some kind of breakthrough occurs um, within Zazen before you can begin a koan practice. Is that accurate? Um, well, in my tradition, it, it really was. And um, I feel that, um, okay, there there is an initial koan called the breakthrough koan. Okay. And this, in my tradition, this is the mu koan. Okay. You don't, I didn't start doing that for a couple of years. So I was sitting on the cushion learning to breathe, learning to deepen my, you know, samadhi, learning to engage with my zazen. And um, that was a hard process for me, really hard. And, um, and so anyway, it was good. It took me a long time to be able to really engage with this. And, and then you get this, this initial koan, and that's the a breakthrough koan. And that for me was the moo. And that um, was completely transformative for me. And, and then that breakthrough cone, it's like it's a key which opens your consciousness to be able to engage with this other stuff, okay, and engage with these other masters, okay. And, and so, so you can do koans, I think, but unless you can really deeply engage with these, this wisdom, then you're not really going to um, touch it and really experience it. Okay, so this is brand new to me. Why do novice or brand new monks, why do they not get koans? Why is this like a practice that you didn't get for a couple of years? What's the justification behind that? Um, well, so um, so part of it is that when you first start sitting, your um, it takes about a year of sitting a lot to really even be able to um, really engage with, with Zazen. It takes a long time, and that's good. You know, and and then as your 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 concentration or whatever you want to call it, so if your samadhi deepens, then you can go to a really um, profound place in your sitting, and then from there, you're you're in this open place. Then from there, you can receive the teachings of of this koan, this breakthrough koan, um, and then later after that, you're also always sitting in this deeper samadhi to. Um, work with these koans. Of course, you work with them in your daily life also, but it takes that deeper level of, of sitting to be able to engage with these. How did you know, or how did your teacher know that you were ready to receive your breakthrough koan, the Mu koan? Well, um, the Roshi is, um, is so incredibly um, skilled in this. Um, a lot of what we're dealing with, again, is this... this um, what, there are different words for it. There's ki, which is a form. Of, it's like a energy flavor. Or there's um, 
kyogai, which is a particular um, particular type of energy. And the Roshi is very aware of all of this. He can feel where you are. When you walk in the room, he knows what your state of consciousness is. That's that's how it works. So for him, he can see. He's seen me a thousand times. For uh, We do a private interview. It's called Sanzen. He's seen me um, develop and uh, deepen and um, you know go from being a really awkward, um, frightened, scared <laughs> person, you know, to um, kind of learning how to um, engage with with life in a really deep way. So he knows he can feel it. Nice. Um, so in very basic terms for yeah. folks out there listening who may not know anything about what we're talking about, what is a koan so a koan for me it's like a little story it's a little story from the past it's a little what they call it an old case i think and really it's this little situation that happened between a master and maybe a student and that situation um displays the master's freedom their their freedom in their everyday life their, their huge state of mind is displayed through this little situation. That's what a koan is. And so you have to engage with this koan. Often you'll get the koan and you don't, you don't know what it is. You don't know what the question is. You don't know what you're supposed to do with it. And, and so your job is to engage with that. Okay. Can you give me an example of like a very introductory koan um, that people would, would receive early in their training? Well, the famous one that everyone knows is what is the sound of one hand clapping? That's very famous. That's Hakuin's famous. So that would be his breakthrough coin would be that what is the sound of one hand clapping? And I did. Um, does The monk asked Joshu, does a dog have the Buddha nature? And <laughs> replied, moo. So that was mine. And so you get this and you think, what am I supposed to do? And But the, with this one, with the moo coin, actually um, – you hear every day while you're in, you're waiting to go see the Roshi, you hear people yell, moo. Yeah. Over and over you're hearing this yell. And, and so by the time I was ready to do this breakthrough koan, I knew I was going to be yelling this moo. And, um, and then when I was on the moo koan for a long time, um, six months, I wasn't yelling. I was just engaging with it. And then at a certain point, um, the Roshi asked me to, to express it. And I, I, I want to say a little bit about this. The, so, so what you're doing is it's like this process starts to unfold within you. And this energy, again, starts to overflow from your experience. And the moo, the, the shouting of the moo is this expression of this cup overflowing. So it's not an angry thing. It's not a... Um, um, it can be angry, but it's not an angry thing. It's more that you're expressing um, this profound, um, full and tautness. Okay. So you get your koan, right? And <laughs> and you go away and you have the koan. So yeah. say it's like day one of having your koan. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do? Like as you're in Zazen... Or yeah. if you're in the kitchen cooking or if you're cleaning, what's going on with the koan in your right. mind? So, so, so I want to say uh, in, this, is, this is kind of interesting, but two different ways this works. For me with the first one, the moo koan, it's, like a, it's a little bit like a, a mantra. Okay. So you're saying moo all day long. Moo, 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 moo. And you're breathing moo. And you're, every time you breathe, it's moo. And then after a couple months, like all of a sudden you're dreaming about moo. Moo is, moo is all your, you wake up and you, you say moo. Okay. You're just coming out. And then um, the birds um, cry, the birds um, singing is moo. And then um, everything becomes moo. You're having tea and you accidentally say moo. And you start to just become totally immersed in this until everything becomes moo. And there's no division between anything. And part of what happens in that process is that you start to transform through that. So you, so that is, it's this way to bring oneness to you and to experience oneness with everything. Okay. And so that's what the first one's like. 
So after you've gone through the process, that first one, then you're engaging later with other koans. It's a little different because you 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 have a um, you have a different sense of um, of how uh, you have a different connection with it. So the koan is very um, it may be very elusive, but you you have you have that key. There's a part of you that knows how to engage with it. So um, um, a good example um, of a koan might be um, um, let's see what's the um, true person of no rank or something like this, Rinzai's koan. And, and you, you have to engage with that and you don't know how to, you, you, you don't know what you're supposed to do. Um, and, and for me, it, okay. For me, the process was, are, are we doing okay, Greg? Yeah, 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 we're great. Um, so for me, the process, um, is it's very confusing. You don't know what you're supposed to do. You you part of you jumps on back to your want to be mental. You want to say, oh, I'll figure this out. I'll bring in this great answer to the Roshi, and I'll knock his socks off. <laughs> you know, and I'll be cool, and I'll be I'll show him my enlightened state of mind. And you know, you so you're kind of thinking, I'll come up with a good answer. And and in that, you're reaching out. You're saying, I'm gonna I'm gonna find something, and I'm gonna give it to him. And he hates that. That's just, he won't let you do that. Well, and you're intellectualizing as well. You're intellectualizing the, the answer. So you're like, man, I'll just be a little tricky. And I'll, I'll fool him into thinking I'm not being intellectual. <laughs> you know, and you take it in and, and you oh, you enter the room and he, he knows. He can <laughs> feel where you are, okay? And um, so, so the con is it's like a door within you opens. And, and you don't know how that door opens, but for me, through engaging with this, okay, so so if, if so if Rinzai was, if I was going to do a koan with Rinzai, I would begin to feel, feel uh, Rinzai's state of mind, and I would begin to engage with that. And for me, it was sort of like a cellular process of, I'm going to become this cellularly, and I would feel almost like I was interacting with Rimzai. And so I would take that in and I would have no idea what I was going to do. And then through that, the Roshi would see, oh, you're, you're, you're transforming through this. So you're becoming this state of mind. Oh, wonderful. So it's about grabbing. It's about all of a sudden you're Rimzai. You walk in and you're Rimzai. Yeah. It's very mysterious. It sounds like mysterious. Yeah. It sounds like you don't have it all figured out yourself, even though you've practiced this for a long time. No way. So, so just to say, we think, part of us, we think, oh, I'm going to figure this all out. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get to the point where I'm like, boy, I got this all dialed in. Uh, you know, this is all clear. And in fact, the Roshi, he takes you, you think, oh, I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to, I'm going to be a little bit open-minded and then I'm going to figure it out or I'm going to not know and then I'm going to figure it out. But he makes you go into this, I don't know. And then like, a hundred times more. So, yes. So it sounds like there's not a single right answer to a single koan. Like it sounds like there might be many right, quote unquote, right answers depending on different people at different times in different contexts. I think there is, there are right answers, um, but um, you know, the Roshi can can see your state of mind, and so I think that is actually the most important thing. So you may not give the exact right answer, but if he, you're bringing in that state of mind, that's the right answer. Okay. So, because so, I mean, anybody can go on Google and look up historically yeah. delivered right. answers to koans. Right. right. In, 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 I think this is part of it, that if you brought in the right answer and your state of mind was wrong, then you're wrong, right? So yeah. he won't let you do that, right? <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so even if you get it right, you can still get it wrong when you use logic to answer it or when you've, like, come in with the wrong state of mind to answer it, when the Roshi can tell that you're sort of, like, just, like, you know, inauthentic or phoning it in or not in the moment. Yes, and, you know, this is a – it's a big process. You're dealing with someone training for years, and, um, you know, the Roshi – Part of what the koan really is is that the Roshi is like a blacksmith and he's he's molding the students. So 
he's seeing this is what's really going to help this person right now to open up, to go further into their um, uh, basically integration of their awakening, right? So if he can see, oh, this is going to really open up this person in this certain corner of their consciousness, he's going to work with you in that way. And then he may move you on to something else that will open you up. So it's very creative in that way. So he's, yes. So on your blog, you wrote that when the Roshi tells you not to use your brain when you are wrestling with a koan, how can newcomers or new practitioners make sense of that? Like, how do you get to the point to where you can stop using your brain to solve it? Yeah, um, I think that the main point is to is to learn to deeply do zazen, okay? And the koans are really just a fruition of this deep zazen, right? So, um, so, so the way we need to really deeply engage with zazen is feeling our bodies, feeling um, internally what's happening. Um, we need to um, spend some, a lot of time on the cushion, really engaging with um, the energy that circulates through our body. Um, so it's, it's the, again, the koans, they're really a fruition of something else, which is, is deeper. Okay. So I've watched, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've watched some, a lot of videos, um, of, you know, footage in monasteries, a lot of the footage in the documentary that you and I spoke about on episode 80 that deeply dissected sort of like a day-to-day life within your monastery that you lived in. And in that documentary, there's a scene where a monk screams at the Roshi in response to a koan. And what I want to know is, does the person really scream in the moment because it was uncontrollable or does someone scream because they feel like screaming is the right answer? Well, um, I know that that video and, um, those were both, um, so, so those were, those were, um, kind of normal answers. Okay. And in, in that really loud scream in that, that was the move. Okay. So that, that's a that's an expression of this energy, and um, that's that that monk's particular flavor of doing that, and it's different for different people. But um, so so those people are not necessarily going in um, angry and frustrated, and so making a shout. That's more that they're they're trying to express. Um, the first one, um, you know, they're expressing a, uh, a sharp state of mind. Um, the, for for an answer to the koan, so there is theater. I would say there is some theater, but um, but it's more that they, if they're really doing that, that's an overflowing. It's it is. Um, now I have in in my sansins in 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 the past, I have screamed and I have gotten very mad and I have um, cried and I've hit things, you know. And you do it's it's a wild scene, you know. Yeah. So, <laughs> so no, I mean. But um, those those, uh, were pretty um, normal sonsins on that video. Okay. So after you answer a koan to the Roshi and the Roshi sends you away for not getting it quote unquote correct, like what goes through your mind when you leave the little building where you had your sonsin? Like is it motivating? Is it dispiriting? Does it strengthen your Zen practice to be sent away repeatedly over time? Yeah, it really strengthens it. You know, you're always wrong. You're always wrong. It's 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 a it's a it's a duel that you do with the Roshi, and every time he wins, he wins a duel, and you're wrong, and um and and so you go and you're kind of like, I'm gonna get that bastard. Yeah. You know, you know, you're pissed off. Yeah. Or you're or you're, but but at the same time, with the Roshi. In sunset, there is an energetic transfer that happens. So usually after sunset, you're pretty pumped up. You feel pretty good, actually. So there's like an under-the-table kind of um, uh, synchronicity of energy that happens. So you, you leave feeling kind of like you can take on – often you can take on the world. Um, but yeah, he, he definitely um, – he make you wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. All right. So, Corey, you're like one of the um you're one of the like the cheerful most cheerful people um that I've come across. And 
you have this amazing blog entry, and I don't remember exactly how you phrase it, but it's like standing in the corner laughing. Yeah, right, 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 right. And so when you just said, you're always wrong, I then yeah. pictured you standing in the corner laughing about just always being wrong. Yeah. I mean, so what's like the life lesson uh, for you of like always being wrong? Yeah, it's it's that you can be really happy no matter what. That's the, that's it. That's 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 what Zen life is like in the monastery. Is that it sucks. It's awful. You know, you're really cold. You know, you're you you got no clothes on. You know, you're you don't have a hat on. You're bald. You know, you're um, you're having to live this life where you get up at in the middle of the night, three o'clock every day. And you go to bed at eleven, and you're um, and yet something starts to transform that makes you happy for no reason and you know that good and bad you know they start to be less important while something begins to fill you up and 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 so that's part of what happens with um the zazen deepening and then the mu and then these koans is that the roshi can find a way to um uh, show you through all that, that you still have this place within you that's un, unbreakable. Un, it, there's a joy which can't be pushed down. So um, that's it. Yeah. Nice. And you wrote in your blog as well that you don't really like pass a koan, like you pass a test, um, but you sort of pass through a koan. Is it sort of like, so I'd imagine like if I'm writing a novel or I'm doing a piece of art, I can work on that novel or that art for the rest of my life but you get to a point to where you're just kind of like done editing or done painting, even though you could work on it for years and years and years, you just get to a point to where it's done. Is it kind of like that? Like getting to a point to where it's like, yeah, here I am. Um, yeah, I think, um, that it's a process and, um, and you go through a process with it. And then often, to be honest, the Roshi then sees, okay, you, you kind of done enough with this process and now I'm going to, like I said, he's going to become the blacksmith slightly differently on your process. So I honestly, you, we don't pass cons. The Roshi tells you when you're done for one thing. Oh, Maybe. okay. It's not like, um, well, I feel like I'm, I'm over that one. <laughs> you know, people are on cons for 30 years, the same yeah. one, you know? So, um, but, but yeah, there is a, there is a, um, and I think, you know, to be quite frank, I think, that this training is very hard, and I think um, the Roshi is, is also trying to keep people really motivated. So if you give them something else to work on, that um, they've been there 15 years, they need some more juice to work with. Okay. So after you finish a koan, when the Roshi tells you you're done with a koan, yeah. the concluding piece is that you then have to find a piece of poetry, correct? Right, right, right. So tell me about this. What's up with the poetry? <laughs> um there's a there's a book called Zen Sand and Victor Sogan Hori edited that. Um, he's a former McGill professor and um, he's a really wonderful guy. Um, and and so these capping phrases, um, Jaku Go, and we Rush would say, you know, mm, bring it a go, you know, based in Japanese, you know. And so then you have to. So he's kind of like, oh, you suck, but. Okay, now bring in a poem, you know, to to say, you know, to to further the enigma, yeah. you know, into this. So you found there's some there's some place within you which um, opened, and you you don't quite understand that. And then the to do the capping phrase, you go further into that world of not knowing, and you're looking through this book. Um, you know, it's kind of like one horse no rider above no horse below stuff like that you know you, you don't know what to make of it and yeah you're this book you know a thousand you know a thousand different little poems like this and it's like you're wading around in the dark in this unknowing and you don't know what you're looking for you don't have a clue how to find it but again you there's some kind of connection that happens through this process and it's like you touched upon some connection and, and so doing the, the capping phrases, you know, there's no time in the monastery. So you're up at 2 a.m. 
looking through this book or you're everyone else is in Sanzen and you're you're you ran somewhere to look through this book really fast and you're kind of like you know freaking out because you got to go see him and you got to <laughs> give him an answer and he's gonna laugh at you because <laughs> you're wrong so so you know so so and you want to be right you want to get it so um it's very exciting so so you're going through this book and um, you, something something starts to transform. Something changes through you, and 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 then you come upon one, and it really hits you in this very strange way. It's like you 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 could you could break out and sweat, or or your brain kind of changes. You, you, your awareness shifts, and 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 so then you see, oh, that did something. That changed me somehow. And so you take that one in, and you don't you don't necessarily know why why that one was transformative but you take it to him you know and he kind of looks at you and um says not very good you know <laughs> Get, but one more bring another one you know and so you do that and you keep going through this process of refining searching without knowing how to search it's very beautiful you know again the alice in wonderland the rabbit hole goes deeper and deeper you think you got it figured out and you go deeper and deeper. And and so with these capping phrases, it's like that. You're living in this mysterious world of unknowing. You have no idea what's going on. You're you still know how to cook rice and shovel and rake, but you're you're in this mysterious world of dealing with these um this unknowing. So you take one in finally and he says, Okay, good enough. Not right, but good enough. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so one of the things I'm really curious about is yeah. sleep in monasteries, because uh, as far as I can tell, it's not healthy to sleep four hours a night. And so I know in a monastery, you only sleep four or five hours a night. And does that sleep deprivation do something that is beneficial to the practice? Like, does it help you detach from the logical mind and assist in koan solving? What is the role in this extreme lack of rest in the practice? I think it, I think it does take you out of your head in a certain way. Yes. But, um, but I would also say that because you're sitting so much, it's about, Sitting is about half the rest as, as sleeping. So you're, if you're sitting a minimum of eight hours a day, you're getting, you're getting recharged. And part of the deal with the monastery is that, you know, we normally work through our lives on a, a particular type of, you know, again, energy. But through this, through the Zazen, you begin to discover this other way of being, which um, it, it, it fills you up. And so you're energized in a different way. You're not relying on um, the same type of um, uh, functioning and energy that you would normally. So you feel good. Okay. I mean, partly. You also feel exhausted, and you, you every morning you wake up swearing. But 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 yeah, you feel good in a certain way. Okay. Yeah. Have you continued that like after you've gotten out of the monastery? Like, do you still sleep sparingly, or have you completely adjusted your sleep in the years since? Um, I'd say somewhere in between. Okay. Are you like a six hour a night kind of person? Maybe. Yeah. I, I really, um, you know, I have a very, I have a lot of people. I'm, I have three daughters. So yeah. sometimes I'm just taking a little time, yeah. you know, I'm up in the middle of the night cause I'm uh, doing my Zazen, you know, or something cause I'm, um, watching Barbie or something, you know what I mean? Cool. So, so um, one thing I used to do in my in my classroom is I would do like a Zen day in my high school class where students would actually receive a koan and we would sort of like set up the classroom to where there were no chairs in the room. There were just like cushions everywhere. Students had to like sit and stare at the wall and like have their koan. And so I would give them select koan selections like who is facing me? How has your health been in recent days? And what is the highest meaning of the holy truths? What springs to mind when you hear about high school students receiving a koan? Well, well, I think that's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. Um, I'm I'm all for um, having people break out of their normal way of thinking reality works. You know, 
for me, it's very exciting to think, you know, it's, it's as if the whole world is going, you know, forward and, and you go backwards and to see what, what's real. And I think in some ways that's what they're doing. Um, personally, when I hear those kind of koans, I, I, I really, you know, I, I hear that I actually begin to, um, kind of engage and feel like Bodhidharma, <laughs> you know, like I could like, it's like this expansiveness starts to take over, you know? So I, I think, um, it's wonderful. Yeah. What do you think that, um, like koans like that have to offer to the young people in our country today? Well, I think that Zazen and meditation are, they're extremely powerful. And I think that, um, again, this is all just kind of realizing what's real, engaging with reality, um, melding with what's happening. I think um, that this is totally in, in, invaluable. I just think it's the most amazing thing. And um, I think if anybody, if, if we can get anyone to engage with that more, that's wonderful. And then I think the koans would be, um, again, a, a way, a, a deeper way of fruition of dealing with that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, so we kind of talked about this earlier. We touched on it, but I'm curious if you have more to say on it. What have been some like long-term impacts of having a a sustained koan practice, how has this molded you and stuck with you for life? Yeah. Um, well, again, I, I feel like part of what the Zen does is it gives you this connection with this source, with this um, true nature. And, and instead of needing to look outside for guidance, instead of needing to um, grasp something, um, the, the, the Zen training, it, it, it allows you to engage with your own process and to have your own connection with that. So you, so that's, that's really what's interesting to me these days is, um, exploring that, engaging with that and, um, sharing that with people. I feel like, um, you know, I deeply, uh, healed and transformed through my training. And so, for me, a lot of it is about offering that to others and figuring out how can I um, be of service? How can I be a light to others who maybe don't know how to quite engage with um, their own process, with their own energy, if you want to say, with uh, with reality? So for me, it's healing. It's um, um, mind expanding. It's, yeah. If you think about yourself, like before you went into the monastery for years and years and did sustained monastery monastic practice, zazen work, how do you think your personality would be different if you had never done koan practice in the monastery? Um, either I'd be dead, um, which is possible, um, because I feel like for me, they're, they're, I needed to dis. I needed to um, to figure out this this connection. I, I really uh, profoundly um, felt at odds with reality. Okay, and 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 so if I hadn't been a Zen student, I would be probably wearing some other I, some other weird spiritual clothes. <laughs> of, you know, I'd be a hardcore Sufi. You know, or I'd be. A, um, you know, I'd be living in some Trappist place or something, you know, or whatever. I think for me, I, I had to. Uh, I got lucky enough to find a teacher who was, um, again, I always like to say this, that for me, it wouldn't have mattered if they were a, a car mechanic or, you know, a used car salesman or um, a Sufi master. If they would have been one, the one who could guide me through this process, I would have gone with them. But the Roshi just was the right uh, karmic connection for me. You've kind of alluded to several different religions and spiritual practices throughout this conversation. I'm just curious, like, what are, do you like dabble in other things? Like, do you have interests that are beyond Zen? Like, what are you into? Uh, well, I love, I love religions. I love, you know, I love Hafez. I love, you know, um, yeah. this joke, you know, our friend, um, our friend always talks about Ruby Zen. So, <laughs> <laughs> We love, uh, you know, mixing these things and enjoying these. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, honestly, this is all for me. It's about a wholesale connection. 
you know, and there are a lot of dealers, you know, a lot of different forms this takes and that's so beautiful. But so I like, I like looking at, you know, different, different religions for sure. I, of course, I think that's, um, but, but for me, what I'm into is I'm still just trying to take away everything. I just find that very profoundly interesting. Like when I'm walking on the beach, I'm, I'm trying to discover what is again, deeper and deeper. What is, what is it that's moving? What is it? What is it that's prior to any idea, any philosophy? That's um, so. I'm so fascinated by that. That training is like burned into you now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's it's um like like you know if you bleed, it comes out. You yeah, know what I mean? the, the Zen bleeds out. You know. Yeah. Like you're but, you're not in the monastery anymore, but it's like still in you, and like you couldn't get rid of it even if you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And I do sit. I, I sit, um, and I, I I find that to be um, really necessary. Um, actually, when people go into this type of process, you can't stop. It's not you can just quit um, because actually your body and your um, your your whole self will it needs to keep processing things, keep um, deepening. It's it's a whole process. Nice. Well. Yeah. Corey, this has been really awesome. I'm like just thrilled to talk about koans with you because, as I've mentioned to you in email before, um, this is like truly mysterious stuff that I am genuinely perplexed on, and it's really uh, validating for me as well because you know I've read a lot about this and I feel like I've intellectualized it by reading books on it, but this is super helpful for me to kind of see what more there is to it. Yeah, yeah, it's, and it scares it, me. Yeah, I hear you. It's scary no, stuff. It's 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 so fur so much further, so much deeper than we are ready for, and that's that's for me. That's so exciting. It's so beautiful, you know. Um, again, you know, I I think most of us are trying to kind of. Um, it's like we're trying to walk over this line, and we're trying to find the answer. If we can just walk over that line. That's a skillful way of being in this world. And we'll we'll go and we'll grab that answer. And I feel like with Zen, they make you suspend that. And you have to walk backwards. You have to walk backwards away from this skillful, um, um, you know, maybe perhaps manipulative way of being and go backwards into the unknown. Um, I find that so powerful cool. and interesting. Corey, where can listeners find you? Because uh, I know that people will want to read your um, your writing because you write eloquently on these issues and you genuinely wrestle with things on the page. So where can we find your work? Uh, well, I have this blog called zenembodiment.com. And um, yeah, I, I, I hope I've done some justice to it today, but with the, with the written work, I can, yeah, I can edit it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I I I, uh, I outlined this entire topic of conversation just from one blog entry on koans that you wrote. So there's a lot there. Um, your blog is a really cool and accessible uh, and mysterious repository of writing that people can kind of wrestle with and wrap their brains around. Well, thank you. And I um uh, any any questions on that blog too? I'm happy to to wrestle with with the with the reader and. Um, uh, again, it's it, for me. This is a way to um, engage with and and help people. So that that's part of why I'm doing it. I love it. Well, Corey, I'm uh, sure that I'll have you back on for part three sometime on okay. uh, on the show. So thank you so much for spending this time with me today. I am so grateful to have you back on. Oh, thank you so much, Greg. And it was really my pleasure. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas@outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.